ministers are about judgment and you have to make decisions and you have to be comfortable with the fact that you will, in retrospect, find out that a good proportion of those decisions were wrong. Welcome back to a new series of Change My Mind, the podcast where we ask leaders what they've changed their mind on and why. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, Chief Exec of the Depolarization Project based in California. You've just heard from our guest today, Ed Owen, who was a very senior advisor in Tony Blair's government. He'll be talking to us about how to influence and why he has changed his mind on the Iraq war and the voting system. Before we get to that though, we've got some exciting news. Our book, inspired by this podcast, Polls Apart, is released on the 9th of September. You can buy it from Amazon, online, or at all good bookshops. You can find out more about the book itself at wearepolesapart.com. As always, I'm joined for today's episode by my co-hosts, behavioural insight expert, Alex Chesterfield. Hi, Ali. And by Corporate Affairs Director at London First, Laura Osborne. Hi, Ali. And is that a new job title for you, Laura? Yes, it is a new job title. I was very pleased to be promoted not very long ago. But actually, it's really one of many things that have happened since we recorded our last episode. I mean, starting close to home on the things that have happened to us. Obviously, the three of us have written a book together, Polls Apart, which is out very soon on the 9th of September. And we had the pandemic to contend with and homeschooling. And Ali, obviously, you've had a baby. Yes, yeah, so people may hear the sound of a small child in the background. Baby Tom is now six months old. And there's been so much going on in the world during that period of time. So when we look out from ourselves, you know, over in the US, we had the very dramatic and violent handover of the presidency. And we've had many divisions caused by COVID. And there's been a lot of trauma in the world in recent times. Alex, what do you think people should keep an ear out for in this podcast? keep an eye out for why it's so hard for leaders who have made a public statement or talked about their public belief, why it's so hard to change their minds when you've already admitted it publicly. Yeah, that's a great one. And we'll definitely be digging into that. And so with that in mind, let's hear our conversation with Ed. We'll reconvene afterwards to digest some of what he's had to say. So Ed, welcome to Change My Mind. We're really pleased to have you with us. Uh, hello, Laura. Good to catch up. So you've spent, I think, almost three decades working in policy and politics and influencing. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the work that you've done and the things that have stayed with you during that time on how to change minds and influence people. Gosh, I've spent 30 years, thanks for reminding me, three decades in various guises, if you like, but with a common theme around communications and influencing and policy and politics. The thing I'm most conscious of is that often the ability to change comes from a combination, and in a sense, this is politics, isn't it? It's a combination of the logical and the emotional. And I was always very struck when I worked in government at the sort of receiving end, if you like, of influencing what made a particular policy work? What made a particular policy controversial? How successful was an influencing campaign to change a particular policy? I'd love it to say that politics, and particularly in government, is, is one that is driven by a logical assessment of need and uh, rational analysis of facts, if you like, to, to weigh up in a, lo a logical, scientific way what the best outcome was. But of course, as we all know, 
politics is intertwined with an emotional range of issues. Politics often is about getting that combination right, and that, that often you can have logically the most effective and perfect policy in the world. But if it doesn't work at an emotional level, it will backfire and can be uh, unpopular and, and can fail ultimately because it has to have the buy-in of people who are affected by it. Thanks very much, Ed. It's actually something we've talked about quite a bit amongst ourselves before in terms of the limitations of facts for influencing and for changing minds, which I think all of our listeners will certainly be aware of from their own experiences. And you highlighted there that logical and an emotional combination can be absolutely critical in actually effectively changing minds. And where have you seen that done well? What's the most impressive piece of influencing you can remember? Well, I suppose if I was to look at it objectively, and I've only had a bit part in this, and on the losing side, ultimately, I think the most influential lobbying, if you like, in changing the course of British politics has been the movement to remove Britain from the EU. And here was an issue which was a relatively marginal issue that was articulated by a relative minority of, of people 30 years ago and has has resulted in the referendum in 2016, which, which led to Britain's exit from the EU. And that's been, I mean, if you think about the profound impact of that, and yet tracking that over that period... The process, and I'm not saying it was necessarily a deliberate one in every guise, but as I say, from what was a relatively marginal issue 30 years ago, then helped to influence the opinion within the Conservative Party and other areas of the media and others, which has ultimately led to this extraordinary change in British politics and British policy. So that, that for me is, and I, I suppose my bit part in that was when I worked at the Foreign Office and worked alongside colleagues on EU policy, and we were particularly at that point working on the EU constitution, if you remember, 20 years ago on, on this. We attempted, and I think maybe, maybe to some extent the fault 20 years later with the referendum campaign, we attempted to confront and to challenge some of the notions and arguments at the time that were articulated by that then vocal but minority opinion by a sort of rational, logical assessment of the, of the facts as we saw it and, and to give a very logical base for why it was important that Britain was a member of the European Union and why it was in Britain's logical interest to do so. It probably didn't work then and it certainly didn't work in the referendum in 2016. Is there a really dreadful piece of influencing that you ever experienced when you were in government or that you've seen elsewhere that you just think, please don't ever copy that, anybody? I go back to that sort of rational, emotional thing. There's an issue around, I remember when I was in the Home Office that Jack Straw, then the Home Secretary, brought forward a proposal to restrict jury trial for a particular category of cases, which actually makes logical sense, not least because actually there are a number of offences and cases that you can't elect for jury trial anyway. And there's long been a, a sort of a logical policy case for this, which previous Home Secretaries have sort of unearthed. And actually, to, to prove my point, it's an issue, a policy position that we opposed when Labour were in opposition. But in government, actually, you, you know, because you try and confront issues in a logical way, it's very strongly say that it was a very logical policy. Ultimately, it was defeated by the same reasons that we in opposition had defeated it when it had been brought up by Jack's predecessor's Home Secretary under a Conservative government. And it is because... 
coming back to that point, it was a rational, logical policy which worked in a very logical way, but emotionally it touched on something very deep in, in the psyche of our political discourse, if you like, about the right to jury trial, which has all sort of historical emotional baggage that comes with this. And ultimately it, it was defeated by a combination of alliance of interests that campaigned against it. What were you looking to restrict in terms of trial by jury? just for the benefit of our listeners who might be in America and unfamiliar with exactly yeah, the, Yeah, that's are. a good point. And it's, uh, I, I sort of plucked that out there as a, as a, unfortunately, rather sort of perhaps an unusually detailed one. So the right to jury trial is regarded often, I think if you probably to ask most people, do you have a right to jury trial if you're charged with criminal offence? Most people say yes. But actually, the truth is you're not, because there are distinctions between different offences and there are what are called summary offences, which you don't have a choice. And the arguments to extend some of those offences to, or to enable judges to decide whether a case should go to a jury trial or not, some lower level offences. And there are some low level offences, which are not summary offences, which, which if the defendant or the accused says, now I want this to go to jury trial, they will go, it will go to a ju- uh, crown court jury trial rather than being dealt with by a magistrate straight and not a jury. So in the sense that it's a logical issue, but it's it's built upon a quite emotional, deeply historical sense of the right of British citizens to be tried by a jury. Yeah, thank you. I'm just going to pass over to Alex now. And I want to dig straight into your time, Ed, when you were right at the coalface of British politics as special advisor to Jack Straw, as he was the, the cabinet minister in Tony Blair's government responsible for the first home office and then the FCO, so the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. So what I'm really curious about is, were you ever successful at changing their minds on an issue? The little thing I remember being, which had big implications I was quite proud of, was I persuaded Jack to support the government's support for hosting the Olympics in London in 2012. Tony Blair actually asked Jack to chair a cabinet committee which would look at this issue. This is back in, it would have been in the early 2000s. And so Jack chaired a committee to look at the sort of cost-benefit of the approach. He was sort of neutral, if anything, probably veering towards not. He'd been scarred by the Millennium Dome debacle, which he had had some role in, and he'd been a sort of ardent supporter of. And I think it had, for him, damaged the, if you like, the the the, the Grand Bourget view of the world, and I think he sort of went into that process with some scepticism. And I sort of managed to persuade him that actually this was something that, that the government should pursue, and that that it would be a, you know, potentially a massive impact for all sorts of things, which as we then saw in 2012. And this was probably this was probably a decade before, but but the Cabinet Committee, as a result, I mean, not the result of my persuading of Jack, obviously the, the Cabinet Committee discussed these things in great detail. But I'm glad to say that Jack went into that Cabinet Committee with a, I think, more positive vein. I would rarely be a single point of influence. I was part of a pro- part of a group of people, including career civil servants and ministers coming to decisions of which you know I was playing a part. It was rarely the case that somehow there was there was one single issue of which I was the ultimate, if you like, advisor to Jack on issues. But there, but, but there was something I suppose particularly because I was involved particularly in the communications side, and there were often decisions that needed to be taken very quickly, often media issues and et cetera, what our response to issues were, which I would then have sort of, if you like, undue influence on. But that's the nature of, as you know, of the way that ministers operate or good ministers operate. They will take advice from a variety of 
sources, and then ultimately it's their judgment. But there's actually, I'll tell you, say there's two, two issues about political judgments I will make. Firstly, I was always very struck that the, you could always spot a good junior minister. The, those junior ministers that were comfortable about making decisions, and I think that mark, what marks out generally ministers from poor ministers are ones that are comfortable making decisions, knowing absolutely that a good proportion of the decisions they make will be wrong. So happy with potential failure. Well, yeah, that's that's a, yeah. that's a critical issue, isn't it? Mm. Because for ministers who are paralysed by the fear of getting a decision wrong, is a poor minister. Ministers are about judgment, uh, often, and you have to make decisions, and you have to be comfortable with the fact that you will, in retrospect, find out that a good proportion of those decisions were wrong. But that is the nature of being in power politically, and so that was that was my first point about political judgment. The second point is that Jack would often say to me when I would bang on about something and say, you really can't do this. No, you really, really can't do this. Are you sure you want to do this? He would, he would eventually sort of get impatient with me. He would say, Ed, I, I do employ you and I do value your advice and, and, and your job is to make sure that as far as you can ensure that I don't inadvertently fall off a cliff on any particular issue. But he said, ultimately, if I want to jump off the cliff, I'm going to jump off the cliff. So you've got to know to when, when not to, when to stop, I suppose. So there's a, there's a limit to influencing too. Interesting. And I want to take you back to a, a comment you made a minute ago around successful ministers or people who are good at their jobs taking on a diversity of views. I'm interested in how much did you see that go on in government behind the scenes around getting that diversity of, of viewpoint and challenge? I think it depends very much on the minister. Ministers have different styles. I always felt lucky to, to work for Jack. So Jack Straw is someone who naturally wants to hear, wants to be challenged, wants to be scrutinised, wants to get advice from a variety of people and then make that judgment. Yeah, now, of course, <laughs> there's a difference between a sort of proactive policy, which is taking weeks and months to develop and then make judgments, as against those judgments often where you have to make sort of snap judgments due to the circumstances in which they come in. But he he would generally follow that process. You know, he'd want to hear from as many people as possible. He was always encouraged inside his, both in the Home Office and Foreign Office, he would want to encourage people to bring their views. In fact, one of the things I remember from the Home Office was I remember being struck by and being sort of coming into the Home Office as a sort of fresh-faced political advisor with no previous experience of government. I was uh, we were quite struck when we had meetings on particular policy issues, how hierarchical it was within officials so that you'd only have perhaps two people speaking, but other people sitting around. And he would, or, you know, would often say, well, what, what do you think? You know, and, and it would be quite uncomfortable, I think, for those officials, the junior officials who were suddenly faced with often... You know, didn't want to necessarily speak in a different tone, in a different way to their superiors. That was a much more, uh, that was a culturally a much more common thing in the Foreign Office, interestingly, where the, the, that culture of people providing opinion, you know, regardless of, of, of status was a much, which, uh, there was, the, the, I mean, there was a much greater acceptance and encouragement of debate and discussion around issues. And that was, what, that was one of the great things about being in the Foreign Office, that's that you were part of that. It was a, it both quite exhilarating, but also ultimately rewarding process because hopefully you came to a better decision. That's great. Really encouraging to hear. Well, I think I was a bit spoilt with Jack. I suspect my mm. impression, and I, and I think you only really know it when you're actually working in, in the heart of it, 
My impression that probably some other ministers were less inclusive, if you like, of a variety of views. And there's a whole, re- whole set of reasons for that. So some ministers, I think, were much more keen to surround themselves with people who, in a sense, were the sort of trusted, loyal people around them. And my concern around that way of decision making is that you narrow your field of advice and therefore ultimately the, the risk is that the decision is not one that is sort of effective but there are different inevitably different styles i mean the views across political parties of course and the processes of political parties confer policy outcomes and decisions is a is a different ball game altogether but that's my experience from government wonderful Ed, we do ask all our guests about a time they change their mind on a substantive policy issue and why and i know you've actually got two for us which is unusual but i was going to ask you first about the iraq war which clearly you were involved in advising jack straw on as in his role in the the foreign office as the decisions were being taken at the very highest level about how to respond to what was going on in the world yeah thanks ali well first of all should i have to say by the way that recruiting you was a decision i don't regret so uh, thank you, you- oh, <laughs> uh, it's nice to know that you haven't changed your mind on ali no that that, that <laughs> remains the same so yeah yeah i made the point before about judgments and also about political decision making and the political decision making is that ministers will often make decisions based on imperfect information but it doesn't mean that you can avoid making decisions and now i'm not making that direct point with iraq but of course the the great advantage of having a view about Iraq is that it is now 20 years since the event. From the luxury of my imaginary armchair here, I can say that of course there were mistakes made. And of course, if we'd had that time again, and if we'd known then what we know now, of course, decisions have been different. So have I changed my mind on it? Yes, because I know things now I didn't know then. And there were a number of issues, I think, that we got wrong. I mean, inevitably, the most important thing was that the intelligence on weapons of mass destruction was not right. And even though it was a consensus in, in, across intelligence services across the West, was that Saddam did hold significant stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction. That was not correct. That turned out not to be correct. So obviously you talked about the weapons of mass destruction being really critical to the argument and the case of how you and how many others ended up taking the decision to go to war in Iraq. That has now been shown to not be the case. And one of the most interesting studies about the role of facts is how hard people to find it to update their belief and to change things and to work out the rationale for why people have gone to war. And there's a study by some people called Neiman and Rifler. In essence, what they do is they show people, people sort of thought, oh, this is why we went to war in Iraq. And then they go back to them a year later and they say, well, actually, you know, weapons of mass destruction didn't exist. Are you still in favour of the war in Iraq? And so many of them continued to be, an overwhelming like 90 plus percent of people continued to be in favour of the war in Iraq, even though the rationale of why they based their original Mm. decision had changed. And so I suppose what I mm. wanted to ask you is, how did you, what do you think has gone on in your head that means that you're not caught in that trap and that you have been able to say, actually, I would have taken a different decision rather than being wedded to your current one, or your, your first one? Because we attempted to, and it didn't win, it didn't secure the support of everyone, as we know, but it, the case for it was done on a very deliberate basis. And it had to be, and so it should be, with a, a, a matter of that enormity. The case was made on a very deliberate, almost quasi-legal case around Security Council resolutions, around the flouting of those obligations that Saddam had had. That was the basis on which the military action was taken. And it was, you know, for all the... If you like noises off at the time and then and subsequently around sort of 
lies and everything else. It, it was based on a very, very logical sort of, if you like, it's like quasi-legal. And so I suppose, given that that had been such a sort of driven part of the rationale for doing it, once, in a sense, an element of that was obviously shown up to be not the case in, in subsequent times, then inevitably that, for me, it was a logical then questioning of the ultimate decision and uh, the, the original decision. And so that was why. But of course, it goes back to what I was saying before, even though that case was made very logically, it didn't win the support of a lot of people. And a lot of people had a, a counter view that was similarly logical, although there were a variety of different views. There were some people who were against militarization per se. There were some people who, actually one of the few people who was correct in his anticipation of what was to come was Robin Cook who actually reflected the fact that he did not believe, and against the advice of many intelligence services, he did not believe that Saddam held significant slots of weapons of mass. And that was the reason why he felt that military action wasn't the right approach and that containment should have been the uh, continuing policy. And and he obviously resigned from the, the government over yeah. that position. And just in terms of how did it it feel that day for you when he resigned and he decided to go against, I, guess, I suppose, many of his friends and colleagues and, and walk at almost literally, a, a different path. Electric. I remember that night. So the debate sort of on the eve of military action, I say this, it sounds as if it, it was a game. It wasn't a game and it was deeply serious. But in a sense, being a sort of front seat spectator to what was happening in Parliament at that point and sitting in the civil servant's box and Jack Straw wound up the debate. But it was an extraordinary evening and Robin's speech was an extraordinary speech and it was the just the you know this was a huge decision this is a big you know you realize this was such a big decision and that weighed quite heavily on a lot of people I think including Jack and I'm sure Tony Blair as well it was this was was not some casual set of decisions that were made this was this is really serious. And there was an absolute acknowledgement of the serious implications of that decision. But I would add, and I suppose to some extent bring this up to contemporary things, as ever with politics, there are also serious implications of not doing anything. And I think we've seen, and I've just sort of widen it, I'm not making, I'm not making a broader case to sort of that military action is always the right response, it's not. But I think we have seen over the last decade that the costs of not intervening. And I think that is the difficulty of politics. Politics is not about making some choices which have no consequences. Any choice has consequences. And the choice of not acting at that point would have had consequences too. Yeah, I understand that. And just before we maybe start to move off the rack and, and, and look at some of your views on AV, one of the questions that we're often asked by listeners and by people when we talk about this is whether the view that you've had and the updated position you've had is one that maybe people who served in government at that time have as well. And they obviously went publicly on the record or you often put them publicly on the record making that and how that can make it even harder to update your position or acknowledge that the facts might have changed or the underlying case for it is there. Do you think that your new view, your updated view is more widely held? And if so, do you think there's anything about the environment that people operate in that could make it easier for them to publicly update their view? Yeah, I think, we, you know, we do live in a political culture which makes it very difficult for people to change their view and, and to articulate it. I mean, ironically, I'll just, just, just make a point that actually one of the things I always learned from Jack as my boss, Jack Straw, was that he was a person who actually was, was not 
afraid to say sometimes as a leading politician, I got it wrong. I made a mistake. Cock-ups happen. And <laughs> there were a number of issues, in the, uh, particularly in the time of the Home Office, where things happened as the minister responsible. You have to go to Parliament and explain and say, look, this happened and it, it was wrong, it shouldn't have happened, but we'll make amends and do this, that, and that, and, and things were put back on track. So, in a sense, we do live in a culture which makes it difficult. It's the, it's the way that I think it's difficult, what makes it difficult, I think, for politicians to acknowledge mistakes is that we live in a media environment which is very demanding of politicians and can be pretty merciless when politicians do accept that they got something wrong and often the sort of media coverage that can follow that can be pretty pretty damning. We live in a macho political culture which elevates a sort of particular view of strength and partly strength is to be all knowing and never never accepting that you have ever been wrong and that's a sort of that's a strange way of because as we all know from our wider human existence we, we, that, that isn't a strength that's a weakness uh, and often the strong thing to do is to accept mistakes and to accept the way you have got it wrong but our political culture is not I'm afraid doesn't reflect that often but I do wish that I think politicians generally could I mean I, I think Confident politicians are ones that, that can lead this. I'd hope that with a culture where I think politicians are very conscious of the fact that the public has a, is a politicians in low esteem and etc. So to some extent that sort of drives even further the sense that politicians can never accept wrongdoing or accept that they made mistakes. But I think they... The good politicians are ones that can. And I, I think that's something that should be encouraged. I wish more politicians would do it. And actually... I I think, as I say, going back to that paradox, I actually think that that the public would actually give politicians more credit if they were more uh, willing to to acknowledge mistakes and to be open about the judgments that they had to take, the reasons why things may have not worked out in the way they'd hoped, and the, and the, the actions they're taking to to remedy that. That may be that may be wishful thinking, but uh, social media and everything else even piling on further pressure on politicians, maybe that's. Maybe that's naive, but I'd hope that we, we might be able to encourage more politicians to do that. I, I was just going to ask, Ed, just on the back of that, whether you have noticed any change in the culture and all the conditions since you've left. Well, I think the scope for that is greater. I think partly because, I mean, the, the political environment that I was working in 20 years ago was one that, was, in the sense, the media were and the print media was was extremely powerful and it created the arena if you like in which politicians operated and that often was not particularly that was quite constraining and didn't allow necessarily for because it was in a sense that the, the way that the media reported issues was inevitably funneled and that's the nature of journalism so i'm not uh, complaining about that particularly but it was whereas now politicians have different channels they can communicate more directly with people print media is not as powerful as it was so I think there is greater potential for that to happen. I think perhaps bemoan the fact that I think we we have a slightly more cowed political class generally. And, you know, that's come on the back of, if you like, a series of things over the last 20 years where the public sense of you know, the, the motivations for politicians has declined, which is a you know, great pity. But I think that's created a, a more nervous, more cautious set of politicians than perhaps before. But as I say, I think that there are mechanisms now that I think for politicians to to be perhaps uh, be able to communicate and to be able to articulate issues in a, in a way 
perhaps it wasn't there 20 years ago. You, know, you can explain the rationale for issues. So, I, 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 again, maybe naivety, but that, that is the big change in, in the political communications world. That, 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 that arena is a different one. Mm. So I feel like there is a ray of hope. Yeah, I hope so. I also think, and this is the second issue I've changed my mind on, is PR. And that's As in partly proportional representations. Sorry, proportional representations rather than public relations. Part of the reason I have changed my mind on that is because I think our political culture, our binary political culture, which is the one that I described before, in many ways is breaking down. It's breaking down as a result of voting behaviour, as a result of the interaction between public and politician. People are not less, if you like, indulgent of the idea that there's only two views about the world. I, I know that. I simplify that for effect. But the, we, we live in a much more diverse culture in terms of issues, of policies and opinions. People are much more willing and able and demanding of the fact they're going to make choices. They're making political choices, which were perhaps, you know, maybe in previous generations, these voting behaviour was one that was, sort of, like, more handed down almost habitual, whereas these, they know, we live in a much more fluid political environment. I think proportional representation is a better way. The, the bit that, that links the public and, and those in power has to reflect that. Uh, and that's sort of the reason that I'm in favour of proportional representation, even though I was opposed to it 20 years ago. So I think in that, that environment, I think there's a greater potential then for people to be much more open about doubt about mistakes. There are some examples in Europe, Europe culture. I obviously, they're particularly interested in Germany at the moment with the federal elections coming up. But there's a political culture in Germany which is not as demanding as the one I've described that, that, that I worked in. There is a recognition that issues are ones that are up for discussion and that they change different parties' views. And that's understood and accepted as part of the political culture. And I think we've got a journey to travel here, I think, in that respect. But the PR both will hopefully, would, would, would potentially encourage that, one good thing, but also reflect it better. And connected to something you said earlier about the cost of changing your mind, of course, the thing politicians never really have the option to say is, I don't know. And I wonder what your take is on how we can become a little bit more flexible about people waiting a bit longer to make up their minds or being able to say in the right circumstances that they don't have the answer. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I wish we would have politicians who would say, look, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that, in a sense, politicians have had at their disposal and have had for decades and is a sort of device is to say, old. Oh, Oh, we'll stick this out for consultation. We've had a process by which, in a sense, politicians and ministers are able to put off making a final decision. It's a sort of process by which a sort of formal consult, oh, hear views, etc., and then we will come to a final view. And it's funny that, in a sense, that, that exists, but hasn't translated, in, to some extent, in the way that politicians behave and talk and articulate in that public environment. I think maybe there are elements that, that do exist within the existing system, that we should elevate. Now, part of the problem that politicians fear 
is that, of course, if you say you don't know too often, is that you can quickly gain a reputation for indecision. And of course, as we know in uh, British politics, indecision is one of the cardinal sins and terrible crimes of politicians. You can never be indecisive. And to some extent, it goes back to what I was saying before about some ministers sometimes being paralysed by making decisions. So there's a balance here. I think it's a natural consequence, isn't it? We live in a much more complex world with a whole range of complex issues and the whole sets of drivers and influences which are going to impact on decisions that government makes. And some of these are issues that can be more discursive. And I think, again, you've seen that a bit, I think, but I, you know, citizens and juries, a whole set of things that I think that politicians potentially have at their disposals, which, which can be, and that we have generally in politics, which we should use more. Yeah, I know there's a lot of discussion around that and how to try and bridge divides using that work at the minute. Just for context for our listeners, there's a great study by Mark Levine, who's a professor, I think he was at Sheffield when he did the study, and he enlisted a bunch of Man U supporters and told them that the study was about something that it wasn't really about. And then the first part of the study involved getting the Man United supporters to fill in a, a, a survey about why they supported Man U. So it's basically kind of reaffirming their identity as Man United supporters and he then sent them out and said right for the second part of the experiment you need to go to this separate or different building across the street and as they were walking across the street a confederate so kind of an insider in on the experiment pretended to collapse on the pavement and it was really interesting what proportion of man united supporters helped the person on the street depended on the football shirt that they were wearing so off the top of my head, these figures might be slightly out, but the general gist is, is right, is when the people who collapsed on the floor were wearing a Man United shirt, 90% of the time they were helped. When they were wearing a Liverpool shirt, um, they were helped only 30% of the time. The point there mm. is just to go to show that actually we, we tend to favour our in-group over our out-group. That's maybe nothing new. But on the hopeful part, is he did a second stage, a second or kind of third experiment. And what he did this time was at the beginning is rather than ask people to write down or answer a bunch of questions on why they were Man United fans, he got them to talk about the love of the beautiful game more generally and why they were football fans. And what that did was change people's identity from thinking about a team, they were football fans more generally. And he found that that dramatically increased the likelihood of helping the person on the street, no matter what football shirt they were wearing. So I guess rather than thinking about Man United supporters, think about them as being fellow football fans and what you have in common versus that you support different teams and what's different between you. I, I remember that, that. So next time there's a City United derby and I'm ranting at the TV, I'll remember that um, to remind myself that actually I need to widen my sense of identity to a larger group than just my own tribal yeah. tribal team. Yeah. No, I mean, in, in a sense it makes, and it, it does make sense. And I see you see that as a football, I mean, as a football fan, I see that, you know, where you, um, I mean, you saw it, interestingly, you saw the, the, the ridiculous uh, European Super League thing came up a few months ago. I mean, that was a, that was where I mean that was a good occasion. That was a good occasion. Yeah, I mean, and including by the way, Mad City fans like me and City fans, Man City were one of the. What was it for? I can't remember. We were united. You know, we were completely in our identity as fans was was greater than our attachment to our club. And so, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a it's a 
it's really interesting and studied that makes sense if you know I mean. I'll think about that I won't allow my tribal loyalty to Man City <laughs> to get, get ahead of me and by the way if, if a Man United fan did kill out I would actually help them so I would probably be of course one, one of the 30% <laughs> I like how you make that sound magnanimous. Of course I'd help them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As if well, there was a I thought mean, process yeah. that you thought you yeah. might not. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, on that note, Ed, we should say thank you so much for joining us and for being so candid about your time in government and also reflective about why you've updated your views. We really appreciate you joining us. We'll move on to a quick discussion now. Thank you. Before we discuss this, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. I'm Peter, the Editor-in-Chief at Open Democracy. We challenge power and encourage democratic debate across the world. Whether that's exposing dodgy COVID contracts in the UK, or meeting Trump supporters as they went out to vote in last year's US presidential elections. You can find out more about and support our work at so, OpenDemocracy.net. Alex, what was the key takeaway for you from that conversation? For me, I think it was uh, the points that Ed was making around that facts often don't work when people were trying to convince him or when he was trying to influence others to change their minds. And what we've heard, I think, throughout this series, but also it's echoed in the academic research, is that time and time again, facts are, are poor persuaders. And it reminds me of various studies done. This was back in the US by various researchers at various universities investigating whether correcting Americans' misperceptions on immigrants would change attitudes. And like many, this is definitely not just the case for Americans. We always see it in the UK and many other parts of Europe that we are prone to exaggerate the size of immigrants and foreign-born populations and also the size of minority groups in our countries. And it seems that such misperceptions are linked to unfavourable views of immigration. So it kind of makes logical sense to assume that, well, if you're hostile to immigrants and you're given correct information about how many there actually are, then you'll change your views accordingly. But what these studies found is that this isn't the case and that although providing accurate facts and figures had an impact on people's knowledge, it had no knock-on effect on attitudes. So it, it kind of suggests it was similar to your, your point around the weapons of mass destruction study that facts don't really form opinions as much as we uh, would like to believe. Rather, their opinions come first and then facts are interpreted to support them. So for me, that really just echo the common themes about the podcast and also the research as well. Uh, and I just wanted to dig into that because what really struck me was Ed was, you know, very honest in many ways and thoughtful about talking about um, how we can be emotionally driven as well as logically driven. But when he explained why he changed his views on both Iraq and on PR, he hung it on actual logic and reason rather than on emotion. That was the reason he gave for why he changed his mind. And I just wondered if you had observed the same thing, you know, when he was saying, well, like, I, the facts were wrong or that weapons of mass destruction weren't there and we all thought they were. He didn't recognise it as an emotionally charged decision, even though, as he described, you know, the atmosphere was electric. Is that a common phenomenon that people still try and use facts to explain why they've changed their mind, even if it might not be? Yeah, so I think two things. First of all, I think it's incredibly difficult to accurately, I guess, self-introspect. Sometimes it is, but on, on bigger issues, often it is really hard to figure out why we came to a certain judgment or decision. And then secondly, yes, I think there is often some degree 
of post-rationalization. And of course, it sounds better to say that you change your mind based on logic and facts versus emotion. And it makes me wonder, I wonder how much the, the kind of, again, we know that when beliefs and opinions are tied to your groups, you know, beliefs and opinions, it comes much more about who you are necessarily rather than actually what you think. And I wonder how much that had to do with it as well. Again, it's often less obvious or people are less aware of the effect that their group identity has on their own beliefs, which we tend to think are from us alone. And we've come to them from our own thinking and, and logic. And it's often not the case. Yeah, I was very struck by the warmth with which he discussed Robin Cook, who obviously as a cabinet minister had resigned over the Iraq mm. war and going against his own tribe. And there was, you know, Robin passed not that long after that. And that might have influenced things, but that that warmth as opposed to feeling that someone had been a traitor to your group, I think is at times quite unusual and quite unhelpful. Laura, I wonder if you had any extra reflections on what Ed had been saying. Yes, thanks, Ali. I was really struck by the way Ed talked about the pressure leaders are under, both obviously at that ministerial level, but it's often very much the same in business where you're expected to form a view very quickly and indecision can be seen as a big weakness. And obviously that combines with other pressures to sometimes make it very difficult to pause, very difficult to take stock of things and seek other viewpoints before you take a view yourself. I thought it was interesting that Ed talked about the different mechanisms that exist there. And we touch on some of those in Poles Apart, actually, in terms of the different ways to get that variety of views, you know, be that deliberative democracy or consultation, or also expanding the types of conversations you have in different groups. I also found it interesting, the points he made early on about those ministers who really did have the strength of character to get a real variety of views from those in the room. It's not always the most obvious thing to do as a leader to seek out those lesser heard voices. It can be very easy to go with the people in your group, the people in your tribe that you know might hold the same views of you or who you can expect to agree with your take on a situation. And I thought it was really interesting that he called out positively the leaders who'd really tried hard there, the ones that really did seek out those lesser heard opinions. Yeah, that's definitely something we could all aim for a bit more of. That's all from us today. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Change My Mind. If you liked what you heard, then, well, you can go and buy our book, Poles Apart, which is out next week. Or you can look for the full back catalogue of our interviews with leaders. Find them by searching Change My Mind in wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back next week with a cracker of an episode. We're moving to the States to talk to one of the world's most preeminent behavioural scientists. So make sure you're subscribed and do go and check out Buying Poles Apart. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to Open Democracy for their support of the show, to Caroline Crampton for editing, and to Kevin McLeod, whose dreams become real, is our theme music. <laughs>